This is episode number 581 with Professor Xiaoli Meng, founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review and professor of statistics at Harvard University. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we are graced by the presence of the prominent and visionary academic leader, Professor Xiaoli Meng. Xiao Li is the founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review, a publication in the vein of the renowned Harvard Business Review, but designed to further our beloved data science community. He's been a full professor in Harvard's Department of Statistics for more than two decades, chairing the stats department for seven of those years, and serving as dean of Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences for a further five years. And <laughs> he's on our show today. Um, he's published over 200 journal articles on stats, machine learning, and data science, and he's been cited over 25,000 times. He holds a PhD in statistics from, yes, you guessed it, Harvard. Most of today's episode will be of great interest to anyone who's keen to better understand the biggest challenges and most fascinating applications of data science today. There are moments here and there, however, particularly near the end of the episode, that do get technical and so will appeal most to practicing data scientists. In the episode, Shali details what the Harvard Data Science Review is, why he founded it, and the most popular topics covered by the review so far. He talks about the concept of data minding, a term that he invented. He talks about why there's no free lunch with data, the tricky trade-offs that abound no matter what. He talks about the surprising paradoxical downside of having lots of data. And he talks about what the Bayesian, Frequentist, and Fiduciary schools of statistics are, and when each of them is most useful in data science. All right, you ready for this amazing episode? Let's go. Xiao Li, I'm so excited to have you on the Super Data Science Podcast. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling from Brookline, where I live. And uh, thanks for having me here. That's in Massachusetts? I hope so. Yes, it is Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, nice. Easy to commute into Harvard. Do you have to commute a lot into Harvard these days? or I, I do, but actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to share a story because now it reminds me when I initially moved here, yeah. um, you know, trying to figure out how long would it take for me to go from my house in Brookline to my office. Mm -hmm. So at, the, at that time, I just, you know, uh, there was a Yahoo map, right? So I just put in <laughs> where my location is, where, you know, my office uh, is. And uh, Yahoo come back, say it's seven miles, okay, away. Mm -hmm. and But guess what was the estimated time of traveling from my house to there provided by Yahoo map then? Uh, in seven miles? I mean, seven miles, know, yes. 20 minutes? Right. Okay. Now you're obviously smarter than uh, Yahoo Map. At the time, it provides a number that I was just laughing so hard. And then I know exactly what they did. It was eight minutes. Right. Uh, There's no way you can do eight minutes, go anywhere. I mean, you know, we just get out of the garage here. But I was wondering, right. 
they must have done something like a 60 hours, you know, a 60 mile, uh, uh, you know, per hour. So, you know, seven right. miles, eight minutes. So it's a great right. example of how long things were then. But anyway, yeah. so the real travel, real travel, I hope so. Real travel is usually about, you know, as people say, anywhere in the city, you go like 40, 45 minutes-ish. Although I have done, I have done 20 minutes, to be precise, 23 minutes, 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I was able to do the 23 minutes. So. Gotcha. Um, so we were introduced by Dr. Amy Brand. in. So she was in episode number 567 of the Super Data Science Podcast. A really great episode about open source publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Amy uh, is the lead at the MIT Press. Um, she runs the show over there. And she said that I had to talk to you. She said that Shaoli, she was like, he's going to, he would be such a perfect guest for the show. And I instantly looked you up and I've been excited about having you on since. So it's been a few months <laughs> that I've been waiting for this interview. Uh, Thank so you. it's so exciting to have you here. Uh, you really are an exceptional individual. So you are a professor of statistics at Harvard, which would mean that we would have a ton to talk about in its own right. And we are going to talk about some of your fascinating research in this show, but Another thing that you do that our audience would love is the Harvard Data Science Review. So you're the founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review. It's about, you're coming up on your five-year anniversary. Is that right? Next year, yes. Next year. Exciting. Next year. Um, And probably close to Amy's heart is that it is an open source publication, open access. Um, And so that means that any of our listeners can check out the episode. So tell us about the data science review. Uh, why did you found it? What is the niche that it fills? Right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, first, I want to say that uh, it is because the funding of the Harvard Data Science Review, where I uh, know Emmy, and uh, she has been tremendously helpful because um, Harvard Data Science Review is published by MIT Press. Uh-huh. Now, I always have to tell people that that does not say MIT and Harvard have merged, uh, although <laughs> Historically, someone have tried. Uh, it's it's simply because the Harvard uh, University Press obviously went there first. They don't publish uh, journals; they only publish books. But that gave me a chance right. to work with MIT Press. And uh, uh, you mentioned Emmy being, uh, you know, the leaders in open source. That's that's like something I want to talk a little bit about later as well. But let me first answer your question about uh, how did we start to think about Harvard Data Science Review and. Uh, Harvard started to have a data science initiative, just like many other universities. Every major or even not so major university these days feel the need of mm-hmm. you know, the, the necessity to start with something on data science. So uh, at the time, I was just, uh, I just finished my uh, five-year term as the dean of graduate school uh, here. And um and uh, one of the co-director of Harvard Data Science Initiative came to me, and uh, uh, her name is, is Francesca Dominici, and she basically said, she said, Xiaoli, you know, we know you are very creative. You know, give us some ideas here in terms of what Harvard Data Science Initiative should do, um, particularly going beyond Harvard, because you know, most of these initiatives uh, tend to be internal, uh, trying to help the data science uh, enterprise on campus. And, uh, but, you know, so I thought, well, I should, I said, I did have an idea because Harvard uh, has their, uh, you know, brand names on Harvard Law Review and Harvard Business Review. 
And what I saw at the time is a need for people from all walks of data science. And we're going to talk exactly what do I mean by that uh, later, that needs a, needs a forum, needs a forum to uh, even debate with each other, to know each other, to understand what each other is doing, to understand why we have so many different definitions or understandings about what data science is. So I thought that would be uh, something I know it would be very ambitious. Um, and uh, uh, But I thought, you know, they were asking for opinions. So I always have opinion suggestions. <laughs> of course, as you probably guess what happened next, it, it, you know, after a few months, they come back to me and say, Shaoli, we love your idea, but you need to do it. You know, that's usually what, <laughs> that's usually what happened. And um, I thought pretty hard about and I did feel like this would be a very good uh, uh, enterprise to get into it. And uh, um, so that's how I, you know, started. And uh, But I want to tell you from very beginning, the, the mission of Harvard Data Science Review is very clear, very ambitious. Uh, you know, I said, if we can do this, we may as well do a big one. So the, or, or mission is really, or rather vision is really to define and help to, help to define and to shape what data science is or should be. And that's how um, I, I can tell you tons about how data science reviews because we have, uh, you know, our board is very broad because of uh, our slogan is um, everything data science and data science for everyone. And so on my board, um, by now, I think it's, uh, we have, uh, uh, we have multiple boards. We have the editorial boards. We have advisory board. We have uh, uh, you know early career uh, boards, you know, which we engage the uh, young people. I think we have over like 150 people, and we have wow. uh, basically from philosophers, and I'm going to talk quite a bit about why philosophers relevant, all the way to uh, quantum physicists, to uh, you know entrepreneurs, uh, government uh, data scientists, government leaders. You know we. Basically, really trying to cover everything data science, and uh, it has been enormously, uh, uh, you know, rewarding as well as challenging, uh, just because people from very different walks and even the way uh, they talk about data science uh, are very different. But that's exactly what we in initially planned to do. Cool. That sounds like a smashing success. It's amazing that only four years in. You already have so many different boards to work with and 150 people in really interesting uh, broad areas from philosophy to quantum physics. That's cool. And you've had some pretty popular issues already. So one big one with over 100,000 views was on the 2020 election. Yes. Um, you've had a COVID special issue. Uh, you've had issues on reproducibility in science and differential privacy. I don't know if some of those topics, if you want to particularly dig into those. Why was the election one so popular? Well, I guess, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Because the <laughs> given the 2016 election prediction were, let's right. be modest, pretty disastrous. And, right. uh, uh, and you know, I actually, uh, part of my own work uh, uh, is really emphasized on data quality. I can get into details later. But at the time that what we decide to do we want to make sure that we publish special uh, uh, themes, you know, before the election actually happened. That so we basically had uh, a variety of uh, political scientists and others who are, uh, you know, brave enough to put their uh, predictions online, literally, 
And mm-hmm. so we can, you know, verify afterwards. So we manage it. And also what's very interesting, time-wise, was very, very pressed because we don't want to <clears throat> people to predict too early, right? Because, you know, that's, that's hard. So we published literally it's like about a week before the election actually happened. And you probably know at the time, everybody was so nervous about it. So we got lots of hits. And, and then we did some podcast later, actually, to follow up with these people who made the prediction and ask them, you know, why did you get wrong? Why did you get right? You know, so on and so forth. So, so uh, when I look at <clears throat> tra- you know, tracing the, the readers, the, 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 the clicks, you can see clearly there's a peak. We're talking about data science, right? That's what these the signals are, just blips, you know, huge blips. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, and so that's that's what we did. And the uh, the one on reproducibility and replicability of science, it was actually uh, a joint venture with the National you know, Academy of Science because they had a special report, I think back in 2019. And so we teamed up with them and uh, we published that. It was a lot of interest. And the special issues on COVID, obviously, uh, you know, by the time I got locked down, that's what, more than two years ago, when mm-hmm. I saw that, like, you know, what do we do now? And, and then obviously, you know, given, given data is so important for all kinds of reasons. So we started to put together um, an issue. I think we, we had a rolling kind of based publications. We get people submitted and we're trying to do as fast as we can. There was a lot of interesting challenges there as well. And um, <clears throat> so we started publishing in May. And the whole issue, I think, last uh, more than a year. We could just keep adding adding articles. By the way, too, uh, for any audience that um, uh, this is uh, completely free, uh, completely open. And yep. So uh, please check, uh, including now, if you want to check now. So. Nice. And so in addition to the written publication of the Harvard Data Science Review, I understand that there's also a podcast, but that it's actually mostly just about uh, marijuana. <laughs> no, I, I know that you well, have... Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a recent episode is happens to be on legalizing marijuana, um, but you've also had episodes about whether we're alone in the universe. It sounds like lots of fascinating topics and probably digging into the data and the scientific literature behind particular topics. Yes, uh, thank you. And uh, uh, we do have an episode about marijuana you know, coming, uh, <laughs> I think just in a couple of weeks. And probably even sooner than that. Well, the the reason we did the podcast is probably the same reason as you do the podcast, which is want to engage audience from you know all levels of mm-hmm. you know interesting uh, interest and, and, and curiosity. And we so far have had this will be the 16th episode, so we're very young. We do once a month, not like yours, it's like twice a week. That seems an <laughs> enormous amount of work. And uh, But the topic we choose, obviously, we want to choose the topics where data science, is, data science is relevant. But that's actually a very low bar because almost anything is data science relevant these days. And But we, we want to choose the topics are you know, of broad interest. And the way we did it, uh, most of the topics we choose are related to a particular column we have in Harvard Data Science Review is called the uh, randomness in uh, recreations in randomness. And that's mm-hmm. a particular column on data science for like leisure activities. And so we had episodes on, you know, wine, how to pick up a wine. Uh-huh. We had episodes on sports and, uh, and we had, we had the first episode was on, you know, you know, matchmaking. And so, Wow. Uh, and, and right, and so uh, we we typically 
have these topics are related to a, a, you know an article or, or future articles that that in how they sign review, but uh, talking a way that in a more kind of a plain language, we typically have two guests and um, usually with kind of a complementary uh, views. And as lots of these topics are easy to get people have different views, but our emphasis right. has always been uh, we want people really talk about data science, the evidence based support because you know as you know well, um, it's easy to be very passionate about something then then choose the uh, theory or choose the data, choose the evidence to support your theory or ideology, and we're trying to get people to really talk about. You know, as much as possible to be as rigorous as possible. So, yes, and uh, uh, we certainly would love to have your audience to tune in to listen to some of these, uh, the, you know, these uh, these episodes. And, that sounds uh, like we'll fascinating. See, we'll see whose episode is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see who does a better episode on weed. Um, uh, right, right. <laughs> that that sounds like a really fascinating topic area. And so, yeah, I definitely I definitely encourage listeners. To check out the podcast that sounds like fun this episode is brought to you by super data science our online membership platform for learning data science at any level yes the platform is called super data science it's the namesake of this very podcast in the platform you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off. Sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Um, cool. So uh, in terms of some specific articles that you've written, um, that have been made a big splash. Um, you recently wrote an article that spells out the differences between statistics and data science. So what is the difference? What is data science and how is it different from stats? Right. Well, <clears throat> I think I've been asked that question many, many times. And uh, I, uh, you know, given, I've given a lot of thoughts on that, like many of my colleagues. But eventually I realized there is actually a very simple answer. Very surprising, very simple answer. The, the simple answer I came up with is simply to ask people, what well, to tell people that the difference between statistics and data science is like a difference between the physics and the physical sciences, or mm. the difference between sociology and the social sciences, right? And so data science, by, by now, it has evolved. It's not a single discipline. Uh, data science is, is a collection of disciplines that's certainly including statistics, computer science, engineer, mm -hmm. and uh, operation research. And mm -hmm. I would go as far as, like, there's lots of philosophers, you know, work very hard on thinking about what a data, what makes possible to predict the future, right? All these kind of, uh, you know, uh, influential questions. And um, so at this, I think uh, thinking data science as a collection of disciplines actually is not only important to understand its scope, it actually has real consequences for university for building various kind of data science related enterprise. So in my first editorial for uh, Harvard Data Science Review, again, it's entirely free. I encourage people to, uh, to read it. I wrote it basically say data science is, a, is, is an ecosystem, right? I, I call it it's an artificial ecosystem. Artificial both in the sense of artificial intelligence because it's computer-based, but it, there's also a, a sense of how it's related to the whole you know, artificial 
the uh, intelligence. And the real consequence here is I wrote there, and I think many of my colleagues and increasingly more people agree with me, that we should not encourage a university to put together a data science department because that's a too small unit. And mm. uh, it's, it's actually makes it very hard to have a, a reasonable uh, curriculum to cover all these topics. You just get students, you know, way too many things. It's just, imagine you have, you know, you probably never heard of, unless you're from some very small colleges, they, they don't have enough resources. You know, <clears throat> barely any university have a department of science because you, you just don't know what to do, right? Because science has biological science, physical science, you know, all sorts of stuff, right? So you basically, uh, the universities should build, if they want to build, it's like a schools. For example, Berkeley is right. building a college or uh, MIT built a college of computing, right? There's various different right. names, but so you really should think about these, these are high level. So that's essentially how we, um, you know, at least at the HDSR, how does that review, how do we think about data science? And it really so gave me the- In your view then, yeah. uh, instead of creating a department of data science at a university, there could be a faculty of data science. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a very much, what's interesting is that uh, if you think about, and this is not just my view, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, as I'm sure you know him, that uh, from Berkeley, who's a leading uh, true data scientist, both a computer scientist and a statistician, have been talking about the very similar things that he, he talked about the, the essentially, you know, what has been uh, uh, such a good opportunity in the last, you know, 50, 100 years in terms of for university built a new kinds of schools, right? You know, we have school of science, we have school of social science. Uh, public health, you know, business school, where is the opportunity? What what has been a topic so universal and important that it's worthwhile to have a, a, a new school? And so data science is is one of these very, very, very few opportunities. And there's lots of challenges, and uh, you know, including where exactly or what exactly should be in a data science, you know, schools or faculty. But I think the general scope is quite clear. It goes beyond a single discipline. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. All right. So yeah, so data science is a big umbrella that includes right. statistics, computer science, philosophy, lots of other disciplines. Now, in that same article, you also talk about two concepts that I hadn't heard of before. So maybe you can elaborate on them for us. Not data mining, but data minding. What's a data minding, shall we? Uh, you haven't heard of. I don't blame you because I coined that term, and I <laughs> and I and I hope that a lot more people will will think about that. Well, let me uh, say that uh, uh, the what I have in mind, and that's what I wrote that article about, is that uh, you know I want to really emphasize that how important the issue of data quality is, particularly these days when we rely on massive amount of data. And a lot of algorithms, including deep learning, or maybe particularly deep learning, that that we don't quite understand how they work. I know we right. you know, have been working very hard. Various uh, researchers has been making big progress to understand those things. And and but we rely on those uh, you know massive amount of data and these uh, really interesting algorithms to come up with these solutions. That that uh, uh, as you probably can tell that you know people uh, people used to say. Uh, you know, what are called the, you know, garbage in and the garbage out, right? Because if you have very low data quality, particularly you use these algorithms to learn the pattern from the data 
And you know, you may get something is really uh, you know quite you know, bad. And I, in this particular article, I said I'm not worried about a garbage in, garbage out because if we if we recognize they are garbage, we know how to deal with them. I'm more worried about garbage in and the package out because the things get packaged very nicely. People just take that you know take that as as it is. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the example I used, and I, that's what I meant by data mining. Data mining basically said we need to. Uh, do a very serious, before you do the data mining, that you should really think through the data quality, understand where data came from, uh, who collected data, for what purpose, how the data were measured, how, what question were, was asked, and uh, you know, how, would, how that were you know, processed, and really uh, you know, mining the data, right? You know, thinking through all these, uh, all these questions and uh, do a serious uh, kind of introspection of, of the data quality. And I always use the example, which I think most people understand. And um, the 2016 election predictions, uh, we in, in the end all get a surprise, regardless of your ideology, is just because we had uh, so much data, so many predictions, all went uh, one direction, right? Most of them. And mm-hmm. that was clearly there's a data quality issue, right? Because clearly right. there were, uh, you know, I did some studies in 2018 to, to show how a seemingly tiny, uh, what they call non-response bias, the, the idea people did not want to tell you what they really think. Uh, not necessarily they're lying. They just say, oh, I you know, have not made up my mind, even when they have. And so that kind of uh, you know, issues that if you don't understand it directly based on the data using traditional methods to analyze, you get tons of these predictions or go one direction. And then we collectively gets very, you know, Frustrated, right? And so um, I, um, the, uh, well, let me give you a specific example about the kind of data mining that I did in that particular article, which I think was a very telling example. And it shows the importance of doing that. I wrote that article because I was asked to, uh, by this journal, this is a journal of uh, Royal Statistical Society uh, from, from England. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a collection of articles on kind of data science, and they asked yeah. me to write a, an editorial. And yeah, they, do you know? Do you know Martin right? Goodson? I think he leads that section. Um, Martin, so, Martin Goodson is the one who leads the data science section at the Royal Society. Um, oh, you're talking about Royal Society. I'm talking about the Royal Statistical Society. Yes, there's others. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah, but but the Royal Society also has been doing a lot of great stuff there. But I was asked to write, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, writing some commentaries in a, in a collection of articles. And uh, they want me to write something like the Harvard Data Science Review uh, kind of editorial. I told them, like, be careful what you wish for. And because uh, <laughs> I said, I'm going to be very critical. So I went through every article, right? Yeah, keeping in mind in terms of the data quality issue. So, I'm, so I basically, for every, so the article, again, is online. So if people are, Want to welcome to read it. I basically look through every article to think of, to see how they talk about the data quality issue. Every article talk a lot about data analysis, all kinds of fancy stuff. But I say, wait, wait. I want to see how you talk about the data quality issue, right? You know, before you do all those things, because I know how those things will 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 affect your your results. So here's one very simple example. One article wants to study uh, these uh, you know heat warning system. Like uh, you know, when summer is coming, and uh, you know when temperature keep getting high, or you get forecast there's going to be a heat wave for a few days, should a city to issue a warning, particularly for the 
elderly for the more vulnerable population. And this group of people, they want to study as well. In the past, they don't know how these decisions were made. They said, let's look at the data, right? Let's look at data to see if these warning systems actually make a difference, right? So they, they pick up a city, uh, I think it was city, uh, uh, you know, Montreal, uh, Montreal that uh, in Canada that they want to study, like, you know, they look at the 20, 30 years of data, trying to study whenever there's a heat wave uh, warning, how does that affect the, the you know, the deaths happen you know, in you know, in the city, right? Right. So it, it was actually really you know quite a, a serious study, but there was a one problem. <clears throat> the problem is they they used the city data and they say that they, there was just one sentence that the data was uh, the, the data they use is whatever the city uh, you know recorded like how many how many deaths on the day, okay? So they so they use use the data. Now I happen to used to study a little bit of issue about reporting delay in for the city to record these data. So I, I had a very simple question, right? I had a question is like, when say they say these deaths on say today, are these deaths happen today or they get recorded today, right? right. <laughs> that makes a big difference, particularly, for example, CDC's data on the vaccination, they have on average about a five days delay, right? right. Now five days is enough to dislocate the heat wave and the real deaths, right? So it's right. just a simple question, right? Because you know you would know that if I, the five day differences, you will see a lot less correlation compared to if the deaths really happened on that day. Right. But apparently that question was never asked because I did not find anywhere in the article talk about that. I don't know if the review remind them, but for me, like these are kind of questions that anybody serious about the data analysis should ask. It could be a simple question to check with the city. You may find out there was actually delayed. Now then the problem become more complicated. How do you adjust for the say five day, whatever, probably we'll have another distribution. Right. And that's a kind of question that I think, uh, uh, you know, a data mining should do. Otherwise, you will be analyzing data, miss the real signal. So that's just a simple Right. Question. Data mining. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a general concept to understand your data before you start data mining or modeling. Um, definitely critical. It is way too easy today to take whatever data you can find throw it into a model, and then as you described, yes. have yeah. garbage in, and then supposedly something well-packaged coming out the other end. All right, so data mining was one of the terms that you introduced to me in that article. Another one was a data confession. What is that? Yes. Well, that is basically, I'm encouraged that anyone, particularly those of us who are scholars, publish uh, any data science articles, we should tell as much as possible the data defect, you know, especially if we collect the data. We tend to not confess that much. Not necessarily people want to hide things, but people, uh, you know, the journals probably have not required that much to tell people, like, you know, you disclose, right? Disclose, like, you know, anytime <clears throat> any of us um, have done the real data science project, you know how messy data are. And uh, from the, you know, conceive the questions, how to collect the data, there's lots of judgment being made. And the process itself sometimes just completely get lost, even if we're the one collecting the data. So by data confession, I really want people to think through and also record during the process, you know, how did you come up with these ideas? Where did you come to the data? What corners you have cut? We all have cut corners, right? And it's a messy process. 
But we you know whenever we send the papers to publish, you know, typically, um, and this has been a kind of a tradition in in the field, right? We spend way more times talking about the algorithm, the models we fit, the right. everything we do. We say a lot less about the data itself, and particularly right. when the data we got from somewhere else, right? And now it's even harder when we got somewhere else. Like we don't even know what else people have done. So I'm, I'm encouraged general culture, which is. This is not really new. This is this is. I was inspired by talking to uh, people from library science, you know, on my board of Harvard Data Science Review because they are the one worry about data curations, right? Just like you know, library like create books because they are the one thinking about how the data is, you know, which versions, you know, how do you uh, uh, record the whole thing, right? There's you know, how do you think about uh, talking about reproducibility, replicabilities. Like how do you make sure that future others can verify what you have done if you didn't report all those things? So these are hard. These things are much more tedious and often kind of a not much get rewarded because the more you disclose, the more the review comes back say, hey, your study really does not worth that much. You should do better, right? So you can see the incentive system is not quite right for people to confess, and so that's why I'm using this phrase data confession. I think uh, if we really take a data science seriously, take about replicability of science, reproducibility of science seriously. We, yeah. More of us should really do more about, you know, disclose all the defects, the warnings for others, right? I'm not saying we, we, we cannot proceed, but I'm just saying it's much better for us to all tell people what are limitations, what are the things that, you know, we all do the best we can, right? That's how the science pro- progress. But we should try to do as much as possible. I know that sometimes very hard, uh, particularly there's their data confidentialities, all kinds of issues. That's another big topic by, by itself. But I think uh, I'm just looking at all these articles in the published, at least in statistical literature. I think we disproportionately spend way too much time on the later part, which is absolutely important. But there are this much more fundamental to the early part, which we tend to uh, say much less of sweep and the rug, you know, so to speak. Nice. Okay. Understood. Um, yeah, that does. Uh, data confessions <laughs> do sound like another uh, a key part of helping data science with reproducibility. And again, it's kind of related in a way to the data mining because yes. we're concerned about the data quality going into whatever models we develop. And as you say, we we put outsized attention on model development and not enough on data quality. So in a separate article, actually, no, this one's a YouTube uh, video. So we'll be sure to include links to all these. Um, so the, the article where you talked about differences between statistics and data science, as well as data mining, data confession, will include a link in the show notes to that article, as well as to Thank this you. video um, on another concept related to kind of a, a data science philosophy, just like um, differences between stats and data science and data mining and so on. So you can you can see that there is not only a lot of philosophers uh, working for the Harvard Data Science Review, but also a lot of philosophy <laughs> going on in your head, Shelley. Um, so this one that you mentioned in this video was that um, you claim that there's no free lunch in data science and that data come with trade-offs. So what does that mean? What are the trade-offs that data scientists must be aware of? When they work with data, sure. Thank you. Uh, well, first, I want to say this: uh, no free lunch 
is not just a principle for data science, it's a principle for life, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we all like to uh, get, uh, you know, things are clean and cheap and, you know, the great, but, you know, you know how in life that you usually have to uh, have to make a compromise. We all like all the best stuff, but then, uh, you know, things come, you know, comes with a price. And uh, the particular examples I have in the data science space in terms of trade-off, there are really multiple, you know, multiple of them. Uh, one of them probably these days gets a lot of attention is the trade-off between the data privacy and the data utility. The, the particular example and for which uh, Harvard Data Science Review will publish a special issues on the differential privacy for 2020 census, right? Uh, you know, here, here is, here is uh, you know, a trade-off um, or, or rather, uh, you know, a dilemma that the Census Bureau uh, was, was presented to, was, was given, right? The Constitution mandates every 10 years, you know, Census Bureau should collect the data you know, as accurate as possible, right? Then you also have, you know, Title 13 says that uh, uh, you need to protect people's privacy as much as possible. Now, it'd be wonderful if there's a way to have incredibly accurate data, but it's also private. Now, you know, that's not possible. And I always say, tell people, like, if you think about the term right. data privacy itself, it's a bluntly, it's an oxymoron term, right? Because data right. are born to review, right. and privacy means to conceal, right? So you right. know that we are just f forever having uh, this problem. And I also say that um, we humans are very good at creating, you know, uh, dilemmas for ourselves, right? We, as humans, we all like have lots more information. We like having information about others. We like have all the information help us to build AI systems. And, uh, but then we say, no, 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 you collect information on others, but don't collect them on me. Right. And, <laughs> and now the problem I always say, you know, the problem is other people's other people are us. There's just no way to get around it. So you can see that is one, you know, one big trade off. The other is the trade off is we already touched on the data quality issue. Right. It's a trade off between data quality and the data quantity. And uh, now in the ideal world, you say, well, why there should be trade off? I can should have lots of data with high quality. Well, great. And sometimes that happens. When that happens, congratulations, right. you have a much easier job. But often it's the case that the, you, know, you can get a massive amount of data, for example, right. from social media, right? Facebook, yeah. you know, other places. But these data that comes with uh, really questionable quality issues. Right? I very recently published an article in, in Nature uh, you know, uh, looking to the Facebook's survey and other surveys on these uh, vaccination you know, uh, you know, uptake. Right. And then it turned out to be they're quite biased. And we all understand yeah. why, because uh, uh, people on Facebook tend to be uh, have a higher education level, for example, compared to yeah. people are, are not on it. So when you right. do survey there, you end up seeing the vaccination rate is much higher, uh, you know, to a point at some point was was 17 percent points higher than the CDC benchmark. Right. So you so, you know, there on the other hand, you can have a very good quality data if you have a very well controlled study, so on and so forth. But they, they tend to be much smaller. Uh, they're much harder to conduct, much more expensive. So you have this uh, trade off between data quality and the data quantity. You know, another trade off is between what I call the data cleanness and the, and, and, and the data validity. Um, any any data scientist, yourself included, I'm sure that you know that we spend most of time trying to clean clean up the data, 
whenever we do anything, right? The data comes messy, you know, things are missing, things that do not match, you know, I don't know how this thing was coded. And we all wish the data was very clean. Now, occasionally we would get a very clean data. Then I would be very worried, right? Because I know that there's lots of cleanup right. done to the data. And I need to know like how those things were done. And often you will find out it's, it's very simplistic thing, you know, have done to it, right? So that's a, another trade-off that you can have very clean data, seems very easy to analyze, but you may get the answers that really are not that relevant because someone else had trying to clean up the data. One very common approach, unfortunately, still happens, is called, a, for example, called a complete case analysis, right? Uh, people will throw away any cases where there's missing data. Only right. study these cases where everything is completely recorded. Right. Well, it is very easy to analyze, but you know that everything gets recorded. This probably is a very right. special group of people, uh, right. particularly, in, in, for example, when you study you know, health issues. I mean, yeah. Whose record is completely, uh, you know, recorded, right? It's so you a, get a very it's not a random sample. It's not random no. representative sample yeah. at all. Right? Yeah. So these are the tons of these trade-offs, and all these things is what I meant. Be there's there's no free lunch. Now the upshot of that, the good news is there's always job, tons of jobs for a good data scientists or statisticians because of these issues. Right. Yeah, these are not issues that it will be easy to automate away. Um, so people That's sometimes no right. People are worried about, oh, AutoML is going to take data scientists' jobs. And it's precisely because of these issues, you know, the, this AutoML approach where, out, where we figure out what the optimal algorithm is uh, and its hyperparameters, okay, you know, aspects of that in some circumstances can be automated, but yes, definitely. it's not useful <laughs> if uh, you have a high quantity of data with low quality, uh, to use one of your comparisons, or yep. you have um, so much pre-processing happening, the data are so cleaned up in some automated way that the data are no longer valid in the real world. They're, they're becoming oh, relevant. At, so, least not a, right, at least not answer that relevant question that you, right. you really care about. I mean, issues like, I mean, talking about, I, I, I'm all for to automate as much as possible. But we have to be really, uh, you know, uh, reasonable in terms of understand this what I call the no free lunch, you know, principle here, right? The example I just give on this heat wave studies, you know, it would be so hard to teach any machine to recognize, say, hey, you know, did you check this data? Is is really the death happened on the day, or that was a death report on the day? I mean, how would any any algorithm do that, right? The only reason I can do it is because I have done studies in some other cases before. I have this way of thinking about those things. Now, I'm hoping some days that we may be able to train the AIs to be able to think like a human, right? Not talking about real AI, to accumulate from past experience. But, you know, we're far from there yet. And mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not quite even sure we can ever get that because it's a mm -hmm. it's a kind of a thinking, connecting thoughts is just not, uh, takes the human intelligence that, you know, and most time we don't even understand how human intelligence works itself. So it's right. hard to model it, right? Yeah. But that's the kind of experience comes with the humans that it's very hard to automate. So cool, Xiaoli, to hear so many data science uh, philosophy um, thoughts from you. Um, I've really enjoyed this episode so far, and we've got more to come. So another one here from another article of yours. Um, this is from an article in the Harvard Gazette, and you were talking about this paradox related to having large amounts of data. So, you know, we've talked already a bit about quality versus quantity. So maybe this is going to relate uh, again here. 
But in this Harvard uh, Gazette article, there were elements um, related to COVID-19 and the paradox of having lots of data. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have a paper where this can happen with electoral surveys. So um, can you elaborate for us on how bias is amplified the larger the data set we have? Yes, well, thank you very much for asking that question. And in fact, the Gazette article uh, was really about the one I already mentioned, you know, the publication in, in the nature uh, on this uh, COVID, uh, COVID vaccinations. Yeah. But let me backtrack a little bit uh, because that's where I started and I surprised myself after I'd done the calculation. This was, uh, I think the other, uh, in terms of the electoral one is the 2018 article. What I did was I tried to um, quantify the data quality. Now, it's much easier to quantify data quantity, obviously, right. but it's much harder to uh, quantify data quality. So it, I started this work actually really um, back in 2012, 2013, uh, the department at the time had a, a visit, of, uh, you know, coming from coming from U.S. Census Bureau um, uh, by name of Jeremy Wu, and Dr. Jeremy Wu at that time made a presentation to my department, and he asked the question, the following question, which I think is a really fun question for all the audience to uh, to think about. And if I have chance, I usually will question the audience. How would you answer that question? So at the time, and it, particularly now, there's a lot more of these cases that uh, U.S. Census Bureau uh, was thinking, start thinking about, you know, how do we utilize all these administrative data, right? There's lots of data are, uh, are already there. And uh, the question is, how do we use these data that we know they cover a large percentage of a population, but they were not collected for statistical inference purpose. So they are not like a randomized, they're not a probability sample, Right. So, the, so Jeremy asked the question to me and my, uh, my fellow uh, statisticians, like, uh, if, I, if you're given a 5% data of a population, which we tell you that is a good quality, statistically valid in a random sample, versus 80% of the population data, which I just tell you it covers 80%, but I have no idea the quality of the data. Which mm -hmm. one would you trust? Do you trust that 5% of the data or you trusted 80% of the data, right? Of course, a statistician's first response would be, or should be anybody respond would be, trust for what purpose, right? <laughs> Jeremy responds say, well, let's say we want to estimate the population average. For example, we want to estimate in the end how many people will vote for a particular candidate, right? So, you know, most statistician, the answer will be, I'd be trusting that 5% of the answer, because 5% uh, of the data, because I know how to assess its uncertainty. I have all the formulas because, it, because it's a random sample, right? So Jeremy said, okay, that's fine, okay? But now I'm gonna change the question. You still have the 5% of the uh, probability sample, but the other one covers 90%. Do you, do you change your mind? Now it's 90% versus 5%. 90% means, I know it's covered 90% of population, but I don't know its quality. Right. Well, you know, some statisticians, myself included, start thinking, well, maybe 90% I probably should have switched. And there's people, right. some people still don't switch. Then Jeremy said, what about 95%, right? <laughs> At some point, he will say, wait, 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 I had to switch because, you know, by the time I get 100%, assume right. people answer responsibly, everything, 100% yeah. should be the right answer. Yeah. But that got me thinking, the Jeremy's question is, how do you, how do you measure the quality, the, measure the quality of your data? Like, where do you do that switch? What's the calculation here? And that's a, a fascinating question, right? 
So that's how I started to do this work. And I eventually took a year, actually. Eventually, this article published in 2018. And I did the following calculation, which was kind of mind-boggling, which really started my kind of journey about pushing people to think about the data quality issues. So I did the following calculation using 2016 data. I can estimate in, in 2016 data how correlated people's response to say whether they vote for Trump or not and their willingness to participate in a survey. Okay? Mm. So the idea is that that correlation should be zero if people just answer honestly, because it, it shouldn't be that say, you look and say, because I'm going to vote for Trump, therefore I don't want to tell you. You know that creates bias, right? So we estimated, because after 2016, we know the answer. So we estimated what was that, what was that correlation? The correlation turned out to be minus half percent. Okay. It seems very tiny, minus half percent. Minus because the answer people tend to not respond are the ones who want to vote for, for Trump. So, it, so it's a negative. Right, right, right. It turned out that the minus half percent essentially caused a tremendous loss of effective uh, data, data size, by which I mean the following. Well, I, you know, I did a rough calculation. Uh, before the election, there were so many surveys out there. I did a rough calculation. It's about amounts to we had about 1% of the voting population, eligible voter population provide their opinion. Let's say that's 2.3 million people. That's mm-hmm. about 2,300 surveys, each with 1,000 people. But if I do the calculation, what's the effective sample size? Meaning like the statistical information in that 2.3 million answer, which sounds a lot, what's the equivalent answer if they did not have any defect? It, it's like coming from a true simple random sample. The answer is a surprising one. The answer this is publishing the article is about 400 people. Right. So basically, the half percent negative correlation caused a damage, which essentially lost about 99 percent of the data, like the statistical accuracy. 99 percent. Right. The statistical accuracy we can show mathematically is equivalent to you have the same answer from like 400 people without that bias. Okay, that was the calculation. And so I carry the same calculation for that COVID, you know, uh, study done by by the uh, by the uh, by the Facebook, and what we did a calculation is there they have two hundred fifty thousand people, but in the end, that because the correlations they have, that compared to the CDC the benchmark, their sample size is essentially anywhere from like ten to two hundred fifty, you know, compared to two hundred fifty thousand. So. That's kind of a thing, what I call the, you know, you know big data uh, uh, paradox, because it, it comes with two parts. Not only you have a tremendous reduction of the sample size, because you have so much data, and if you, if you did not realize how uh, small the data size is, if you just do the traditional, you know, confidence interval calculation, right? Because you, you, you want to give error bars. Your error bar will be way too small, right? Because you use this erroneous sample size. So your error bar is so small, you will... Actually, the more data you have, the more you'll be centered at the wrong place. You will make sure yourself right. you never get to the right place, right? This is what I meant by the big data right, paradox. Right, right, because right. Because the, right. the larger the, the data size, the, the more sure your answer is, but you're centered at the wrong place. Your confidence right. interval literally shrinks as the sample size goes up. You right. actually got, you, you're gonna, get, you have, have a higher and higher chance to prevent yourself to get to the right place at all. That's the yeah, big this- data paradox. This is something I think about a lot as, as we have lots of data. And so this is something that impacts me all the time. If you try to use statistic, statistical approaches, like frequentist statistical approaches that were developed over a hundred years ago, 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, those, the common way to get those error bars would be to say, divide by the square root of the number of samples you have. Exactly. And when you're dealing with millions of data points, that means that your error bars are, they don't exist. Right. <laughs> you're saying, right. I know exactly where exactly. we are. Right. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but yes, you know exactly where you are, except you're at the wrong place. Right. So, so the whole paper I wrote is, is to really show these, uh, show these calculations. And then you're know, speaking with these frequency methods, they're based on a fundamental assumption, which is that the data are well mixed. It's right. a probabilistic sample, right? And, right. And, uh, and, and, and so that's where, you know. Right. So we're taking, so the, we're taking uh, techniques where we explicitly say, and even if you're in an introductory statistics class as an undergraduate student, you're saying, okay, this statistic, it only applies if you have a representative random sample. But then we're constantly using that today in situations yeah. where we don't have a representative random sample. Right, we know we don't have it. Yeah. Right, because, and, and the, 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 the thing, I guess, in the, my 2018 article, it's also available online, um, the, I think the surprising part, even some of my statistical colleagues are still debating with me, what my calculations show is what matters is no longer just the sample size, is the relative sample size, how the sample size divides by the population size. And, and the, the larger the population, the worse you, you, you will end up with. <laughs> and, and, and that's the, and if, you know, to a, to a layperson, that's not surprising, right? The large population is, if, you know, is harder to, to analyze. But uh, the statistically, I always using the following analogy to help the general population to understand why the statisticians at the very beginning say we can ignore the population size, right? It's very much like when you taste a soup. You know, if you're tasting soup, if you, if you have a well-mixed soup, right, regardless the size of the container, all you need is, is, is just a couple of spoons, right? Because, you know, you can taste how salty it is, you know, how delicious it is. As long as the soup is well-mixed, you don't really need uh, that much. But if the soup is not well-mixed, then you can see the size of the container really matters, right? Because, you know, the larger the container, the more chances right. there's some, some salty chunks, uh, you know, somewhere else. Right? right, and so once you lost this kind of a well mixed assumption, that's a, that's essentially is what it is. It's well representativeness, the homo homogeneity. Then the problem become a lot lot harder. And the problem these days is the social media data, particularly is, is because of self offering data. Right, you know you cannot really randomize people. So you go on this Twitter, you go on this Facebook. Right? You don't. That doesn't happen. Right? You lost the control in in terms of the statistical kind of a control, and so then. You really have to be careful. We all knew these things, but we all hope these problems are not that big. But you know, what I did it was just to show how seriously the pro the problem is, because it really kills ninety nine percent, even over the amount of data. And, and you can just do this mathematics; it's just out there. Fascinating. Um, that was a really great explanation of this paradox of having more data. Really enjoyed that discussion and. It leads perfectly into our next topic because we started talking about frequentists. And uh -huh. so <laughs> yet another uh, article you have, it's an amusing uh, article in a generally amusing column that you have in the Institute of Mathematical Statistics Bulletin. So you have a column called the Excel Files, which I can only assume is a play on the X-Files 
TV show name yes. and your name, Shaoli. <laughs> uh, the Excel files. Um, and um, so amongst many fun articles in there, there's one of them titled <laughs> BFF Forever. Uh, and so BFFs, for those of us who aren't uh, <laughs> uh, high school-aged girls, uh, stands for Best, Fe Best Friends Forever, BFFs. Mm -hmm. And um, you use that to uh, summarize the three big schools of statistical inference. So frequentist is one that we just talked about. Another one is Bayesian. Mm -hmm. And the third one is actually one that I am not very familiar with, uh, fiducial. So for our listeners' sake, could we go over what these three different schools are, frequentist, Bayesian, and fiducial? And in the last case there, you're going to be explaining it to me for the first time, too. Yeah, well, I don't blame you. Fiducial is one of these uh, perspectives that has existed for a long time, and essentially coming from Ari Fisher, you know, Fisher... Uh, Contribute a lot to uh, statistics, as you know, yeah, and uh, but it's also as it has always been regarded as the fish's biggest blunder because it's the oh. most controversial one. So uh, let me give a try. Okay, this is a uh, this is self worth. We'll probably we can do an episode for two hours to explain all these three three different perspectives and why we have this uh, kind of a community called you know BFF. Um, first, I think the frequentest one probably is the one that most of us learn statistics. That's where you start from, right? And I, I'm sure because the most uh, textbooks, you know, teach that. And I certainly think I went through the whole process myself uh, without even knowing there are these different names, right? So, uh, so I think the best way I can explain this, let me really give it a try, that um, start from think about data, all right? So data <clears throat> essentially has had data have two uh, pieces in any data. Well, one part is what we call a signal. That's the pattern. That's something we want to, to, to understand, to, to know. The other part is noise. These are part, you know, they're, they're there. It's annoying. We want to get rid of them. But, you know, data basically comes with both the signal and the noise. And so for the entire data science community, in fact, all we do is trying to separate what is signal, what is noise. The complication there is first, how do you do that? Second is, you know, signal in one study is noisy in another study and vice versa. But the, the notion itself is, is, is a relative one. But you can see why the philosophy is there all the time, okay? Because, you know, these issues, for example, particular one, I also have done quite a bit of study is on these, uh, you know, individualized medicine, right? There is, you know, what's a signal, what's a noise, you know, what's evidence, it's, it's just very complicated. But let me go back to explain these, these different, uh, three different schools. The frequentists essentially focus on data itself. They, they, you know, every study, whatever study you do, right, you need to think about what is a replication. Because, you know, if you have any problem, uh, in order for you to, to convince anybody, particularly scientifically, you need to talk about, like, if I do this study again, like, you know, you know the, the, my method will work, not just for this one case. It's not even clear what do you mean by, say, working with this one case. You have to think about replications, what the replications are. And it is in thinking these different replications, these different philosophers comes in. The frequent thinking is focusing on data. Basically thinking about hypothetical thinking about that if I can repeat the process again and again, seeing different data, how my procedure is going to work. 
for example, in the predictions, right? We're basically thinking about, well, the whole randomization say, you only have one sample. Let's say we talk about 400 people. But the idea here is that if I do this replicate to 400 people again and again, many times, how my procedure is going to work, right? So that's called a frequentist. So you see, it it basically requires you to you think about the data you actually don't have. That's the frequentist. The base said, well, I don't care the data I don't have. I care about the data I have. Can you tell me, like, based on the data I have, what's going on? Like, you know, how do I make an inference problem? Because all I have is my data. Now, the problem here is that if you think like a frequentist there, you will get stuck because there's, there's no replication there, right? Data is fixed. And whatever the scenario I want to know is a fixed scenario. The hypothetical is it's unknown, right? So the base will think about, okay, now let's hypothetically think about all the different scenarios that could have generated the data I have seen. Among all these scenarios, which one is most likely? Right. Right? So, you know, it's essentially, it's, for example, if you have some COVID symptoms, now I have to think about, like, oh, you know, there are many possible ways why you're coughing, like what I'm having now, right? There are many possible ways you were coughing, right? And which one is, is most likely? Now, I think for most people, that is a question people want to really have the answer. I don't care about, you know, other people's symptoms. But in order to answer that question, you need to come up with a replication. Think about all the different scenarios. So that's what the Bayesian called the pride. The prior knowledge you need to think about, and that itself is a controversial notion. You need to think about probabilistically what are all the different scenarios you you you, you could have, and right. a frequentist can reject the notion and say, no, no, I only have one disease. Okay, right. I don't want to assume that I have a multiple diseases. So, but you you see the direction is different. The replication is now imagine all these different scenarios could have generated exact data as 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 I have. Okay, mm. so that's the one is so I always have these fan shapes. One is thinking about one scenario generate all the different data. The other is a reverse the shape. Think about your data, but all different scenario can generate the data as you, as you see. The fiducial is the hardest one because fiducial does not fix either one of them. Fiducial is essentially thinking about the pair. Think about all the data, all these uh, uh, scenarios you can have. Imagine you know, every person in the population, you, you have your, your symptoms, you could have your diseases, okay? And, and you have all these uh, different pairs. So fiducial, instead of uh, working on the, the frequency working on the data, the base working on the, the, the signal, they put a distribution on the signal. And the frequency working with the noise part. Frequency look at the difference between the signal and the, and, and the data, thinking about what are the possible noises are consistent with the symptoms I'm having. And it, it, it operates on this kind of a joint space. And it has, it, it itself has philosophically and even operationally, you know, have quite a bit of, quite a bit of uh, trouble. That's why you probably have not heard about people don't really uh, uh, teach that much about. But it offers a way, what the frequency is trying to achieve, sorry, what the fiduciary is trying to achieve, is they try to achieve, they try to answer the base question, which is giving my data what, is the disease I have. But they don't want to assume that kind of a prior knowledge, which you may or may not have. I see, so yeah. that's why I make them very harder. They're trying to operate, they're trying to use a distribution on the noise to infer that distribution on your this disease without assuming the, the prior, prior distribution. And at the end of that's not really possible. 
But there are certain scenarios under which that you can get pretty far. And that's why the school itself is, is a much more philosophical and much harder to operate, much harder to teach, much harder for me to, for me to explain. <laughs> and I'm sure all my fiduciary friends will say, Shadow, you didn't give the right interpretation of the explanation. <laughs> but I, I try. Okay. I would invite well, anyone trying to explain in fiduciary I, without formulas. <laughs> there's no way for me to know if it was the right explanation, but it did make sense to me. So Good. I like that. It's so fiduciary Good. statistics. Um, it makes use of the data that you have. It doesn't worry about some unknown distribution that you don't have. Um, and it's trying to make inferences without priors, priors that exactly. statistics relies on. Right, right. And it's trying to give a distribution answer without assuming a prior. And it, it turned out that you, you can do it in some sense because you do have this distribution on the noise. So the way they do it essentially is saying, you know, just imagine very simply, your data is noise plus signal. But if you have data, once you see the data, if I have a distribution on the noise, it is somehow implies that there's a distribution on the signal, right? Because the data equal to the signal plus noise, I can kind of solve that equation. But it, except that solving these distributions is not exactly right. So that's, that's why the complication, you know, you know, come, uh, you know, comes in. But there is an attempt, uh, uh trying to do the best in, in terms of the best of the both schools. And that's why gotcha. the thing uh, still alive. In, and in fact, uh, what's interesting that there are increasingly more people in the machine learning content, they're doing things that they don't realize they're actually doing fiducial. Uh, they're solving, they're plugging this thing, solving equations, assuming this is known, that known. If you look at them, they're not coherent. They're, they don't follow property school rules. They follow some solving equation rules. That actually is what the fiducial does except that most people don't know what they're doing is actually a fiducia answer. Yeah, interesting. You learn something new every day. That's a big one for me. I love that I've learned a whole other school of thinking on yeah. statistical inference, fiduciary. And um, so we've never had, obviously, an episode on fiduciary statistics on the Super Data Science Show, or I would know what it is. But if listeners are interested in hearing more about Bayesian statistics, we have an epic two-hour-long episode, episode number 507 with Rob Tranguchi uh, from last year, from 2021, that is all about Bayesian statistics. And I thought we might be taking a risk with that episode and that it would be too technical, but it's one of the most popular episodes we've ever had. So uh, yeah, you can check that out um, if you're interested in learning more about Bayesian stats. But my question for you, Li is okay, given now that we're aware of these three schools of statistical inference, Bayesian, fiducial, and frequentist, there's a lot of people who debate that one is better than the other, but you think that these three, <laughs> B, F, and F, Bayesian, fiduciary, and frequentist, should be BFFs forever. They should be best friends forever. So uh, why do you say that? Well, it's it's a great question, and uh, uh, the reason I say that, and also my BFF, you know, community colleagues, is because we all kind of went through these different perspectives. We try to convince ourselves which one is the best. We end up realizing we really need all of them because each one of them have something to offer, and each yeah. one of them has its own weakness. And in fact, that I come to a conclusion. This is you know part of saying I'm trying to do this more uh, a foundational thinking that I don't think we will ever settle which one is better because fundamentally, anytime you do anything about data science, right, you 
there is a leap of faith uh, involved. Right? Let me, uh, you know, let me explain what you, you know what that means. Um, this is part of the reason why single philosophy is so important for for thinking about the data science itself. But you have to ask you, you, yourself that anytime I have the data, and I'm asked to use the data to predict something which which nobody knows for sure, because if they do, then you know we don't need to do the prediction. What makes possible to go from the data to whatever this thing I want to know, right? Logically, why why would that be even possible? What what's a part of nature, or if you believe God, which part of the God that allows us to do that, right? So so basically, uh, the the every school, and this why lots of philosophy involved, is thinking about what are the links between what we know and what we don't know, right? And in this process, that these different approach, the perspective I just talk about is all trying trying to use the mathematics to help us to make the link, to make that connection, right? And I can tell you what what's the problem with each one of them and why I'm in the end, and I think increasingly more people realize we should, we, we should use all of them. Uh, first, we start as a frequentist like myself, right? But eventually the Bayesian convinced me that the frequency has one fundamental flaw, which is that, yes, you can study all these beautiful answers, tell me on average something works. But in the end, right, even, even if I, even you tell me that that medication has 95% chance work for you, right? Well, there's still 5% chance that it doesn't work for me. And a 5% in the population is a huge amount of people, right? Yeah. You know, and how do I know I'm not the 5%? Like, how do we know this uh, average answer is relevant to me? So the, right. the frequency one forever suffered this could be completely irrelevant, right? Just just for just just for me. So uh, so then we go to the base answer. The base answer is obviously well, it will be very relevant for you, okay? Because that's way it. But that's way how it is set up. But the problem is you need to make lots of assumptions in order to get an answer. And the question is how do I? know these, these assumptions themselves are reliable, right? Now, there is a, a school called Objective Bayes. The idea is, can I use a prior knowledge, which people call a non-informative prior? Can I assume, basically, I'm very ignorant and use that school? Now, if that can happen, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> but it turns out, this is the fatal thing about a Bayesian, a Bayesian statistics. Bayesian statistics... There's no way you can put down a prior which is truly ignorant. Probability right. dis- distribution does not allow you to model ignorance. Mm. Because anytime you put down a dis- distribution, people say, well, let's assume like everybody equal chance. No, equal chance is not being uniform, uh, not, not being ignorant. Equal chance is a huge amount of information, right? right? Anytime you put down a distribution, it will ask you to specify the relevant frequency of two different states, right? right. So, so you have to do that. So it turned out the problem with Bayes, I've been using this phrase, because thinking about doing mathematics without the, the concept of zero, because in Bayes, right. there's no zero, there's no zero information. You, you always have to assume something, right? right. So, so that's where now I start moving to the fiducia, because fiducia said, we want to do the inference, but without making any assumptions, without a prior, essentially like the zero information. And they can right. do that. But it turned out that it itself, because... Uh, it, itself because the zero requirement. It turned out that how do you operate? How do you using in the fiducial framework or more, more generally, there is a whole area called imprecise probability. The imprecise probability is exactly trying to address the issue. The probability itself is too precise because the probability itself still need to specify the relative 
relevant frequency. Sometimes I just know the answer between three and a five, but don't ask me like how likely is four compared to 2.5. I don't know. I know the answer between three and a five. How do you model that? And that one, the base, current base probability cannot handle that. So the imprecise probability is trying to handle that kind of thing. But it turned out that I just wrote another article recently. When you do that, you still have to make a judgment how you want to update the information. Like in base framework, you have a base zero to tell you how to update the information, right? There, there's a clear rule. But broadly, when it goes to this imprecise probability, you have a variety of different rules. It depends on whether you're an optimistic person or you're pessimistic or your opportunities. Like these different perspectives will give you different rules, give you, give you different answers. So then I realized, okay, now you see, every school has problems, right? Every school that either you get answers are not that relevant or you need to make lots of assumptions or you still need to make some judgment. So, so the thing in the end, you realize that all schools, they're all trying to do the right thing, but they all come up with different answers and not because they have defect uh, just for the sake of having defect. It's because if you think of fundamentally what makes possible to make prediction of the future. I think there's just a fundamental problem is there's no simple answer here. And that, in the end, just like the whole data science itself, we basically have to use whatever the methodologies, you know, all can help. But we need to be aware of the limitation of each one of them, and we understand right. where you're going to suffer if you if you use it in, in not in the right way. That's why wow. I think we should all use all of them. Beautifully said, Xiaoli. That was an extraordinary section of not just this podcast, but of any of the episodes we've had, that explanation of the differences between frequentism, Bayesianism, and fiduciary approaches, and that kind of that timeline that I think a lot of us go through. So um, I'm maybe early on in my Bayesian uh, phase. And uh, yeah, I look forward to exploring it deeply enough that I see that fiduciary is the right thing for some circumstances, but uh, yet not all. It has holes. It has holes itself. Yeah. Very cool. All right, Shelly. So this has been an exceptional episode. And I'm sad to say that we're starting to get near the end, which means that it's time for me to ask you for a book recommendation. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I'm going to show you which book I'm, I'm, I'm reading. And uh, it's called A Beyond Flavor. Oh, yeah. It's a book by Nick Jackson who is a master of wine. And this book teaches you how to do blind tasting. And now you may ask, you know, why a statistician is reading a book on blind <laughs> tasting about wine? Well, first, well, uh, to, I, know, I, I know love you wine. like wine. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I love wine. Yeah. And the second, I think that if you truly understand uh, how to, um, uh, you know, judge the quality of a wine, and how nuanced the process is, you would understand the data science far better than people don't go through that process. The reason mm -hmm. I'm saying that is that I've, for any of ones we ever have any experience with the wines, wine just has comes with so many different uh, features, right? And the predicting wine is, is like, you know, and it's, it's also very personal. The people, you know, the wine looks like this taste may be fantastic for you, for somebody else, they say, ah, you know, that's, you know, that's terrible. Right. And uh, uh, this uh, this particular book uh, was recommended to me by uh, a, a, you know, a former student of mine who's working with me on uh, data privacy issue. And uh, um, her name is Robin Gong. Uh, 
uh, a faculty at at the Rutgers University. She recommended this book to me because she knows I love the wine, but also uh, <laughs> we talk about this whole issue of uh, you know how to predict the wine quality. Here, uh, let me be be very specific here. Why why this is a terrific book? Because uh, why it's called a beyond flavor? Uh, because most people taste the wine, trying to guess which wine they they use the flavor. They say, well, you know, how how does it taste? And mm. big, uh, Nick Jackson basically said, well, that turned out that the flavor is not a good predictor, okay? Because particularly in these uh in 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 these kind of uh you know blind tasting, particularly if you want trying to pass these exams, like you mm. know they give you these much more trickier ones, right? You know mm. the flavors are kind of similar, right? And so you need to look for the structure of the wine. For example, uh, you know, you know, he talked about the uh, talk about the acidity of you know, of the wine. And basically, this is like uh, for those people who learn uh, do machine learning. You're basically like you're you're doing feature engineer, right? Engineer, you want right. to see which is a good uh, you know good predictor. So he yeah. talk about particularly talk about that when we think about acidity, we just say well you know the you know that the level you know level of, of the of the you know, acidity. And he said, no, that's not enough. You need to think about the level of acidity, think about the type of uh, acidity, but also the shape of the, uh, you know, acidity. And I say, I never heard of what is the shape of the uh, acidity. Well, and he, he talked about like how when you drink the wine, when you sip the wine, where does the acidity start to grow? Does it always flat all the way? Or, that, or, or start kind of strong, then, then it goes down? Or start low levels, then then it goes up, goes up. And he said, in different wines, had that kind of different shape. If you understand yeah. that shape, you can do much better predicting a blind wine. So this is yeah. essentially machine learning, right? Essentially, it's like a human, you know, way trying to recognizing these patterns, right? So I would certainly highly recommend the the book, even if you don't care about the blind testing. But I think <laughs> there's lots of thoughts there in terms of these kind of a very practical way of engineering the features. And for for these predictions, and I want to say that if we can ever teach machine to really do uh, blind wine tasting, now yeah. we're talking about real artificial in- intelligence. <laughs> and 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 I always think about someone. Maybe you should start something called a deep wine. So if you can do that, <laughs> and then we're really thinking about how we think like a human, how the machine can think like a human, and to do this incredible hard you know prediction. Nice. All right. That is a really fun recommendation. Uh, I also didn't know about acidity shape. Um, that sounds like quite an interesting feature for our deep wine algorithm that no doubt our listeners are now going out and building to realize AGI very simply. That's all it took. That's all it took, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic. Jali. Thank you so much for being on the show. No doubt our listeners learned a ton from you. Uh, how can they keep up with your latest? Do you post on social media or anything like that? I guess, obviously, they ha- the Harvard Data Science Review yes. is huh. the place. Uh, to- That's a place to, uh, you know, I'm, yes, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I actually refused to on Twitter for a long time until I become a the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science <laughs> Review. And people say, you really got Twitter because that's a good way to, to get uh, to get you know promote uh, HDSR so yeah and uh, uh, you know my I'm on Twitter I'm I am on well my email is open so uh, if anyone is interested uh, you know feel free to to shoot me email I may or may not be able to always answer uh, just because I get you know there's a volume here but uh, I think HDSR will be a great place to really 
uh, check out what what's the latest in, in data science. We have we have these different different columns. We have we have six columns on from these kind of you know recreational. To we we have I I should share the story with you. How do we, how do I come up with the term data mining? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, instead of data mining, because we have we have a column on the history of data science called the mining the past. And I was talking to some other uh, uh, co-editors. We were talking about coming up, uh, you know, a column about the future of data science, meaning training the pipelines, talking about K-12 right. students. And yeah. we want to have, you know, have a, a, have a title. So I said something like, since we have a mining, uh, mining the past, why don't we have a mining the future? And one of uh, uh, my board members, she misheard. She said, oh, I like the mining the future. Uh, then I say, oh, that's better than mining the future. <laughs> that's how we come up with the term. So got we have it. a column called the mining the future. That's where I got the mining, you know, data mining itself. And nice. uh, we have articles from very perspective, kind of philosophical articles, all the way to the very technical ones and, and education ones, applications. And uh, so it's, it's all free. And so, and if you want to uh, get a hard copy, we have these hard copies to sell the inaugural volume online, and uh, uh, that's uh, uh, you know, I think it's worth to uh, worth to check out as well. Very cool, and of course, the Harvard Data Science Review podcast as well for your monthly fix of recreational topics such as recreational marijuana, the uh, <laughs> wondering about the existence of aliens, and so on. Um, Shaoli, thank you so much for being on the show and hopefully we can have you on again in the future someday. Thank you very much for having me. And this has been really a great conversation and I hope that your audience will, uh, enjoy. And of course, I hope they will listen to our podcast and also as well, check out HDSR. Thanks. Thanks again. What an honor to be able to speak with the extraordinary Professor Meng today. Despite his world-leading accomplishments, he was remarkably humble and an easygoing character. I had a terrifically enjoyable experience conversing with him. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In today's episode, Chow Lee filled us in on how he founded the Harvard Data Science Review to shape what data science could be in the years to come. He talked about how data science is a collection of disciplines, including statistics, computer science, philosophy, and many more. How data minding is understanding your data well before mining or modeling it. How there's no free lunch with data, trade-offs abound. For example, the very concept of data privacy is at odds with the inherently shareable nature of data. How data quality and quantity are often inversely related and how cleaner data can be less valid to the real world. He also talked about the paradox that having more data often means greater confidence around the wrong estimate of the population mean and how the Bayesian, Frequentist, and Fiduciary schools of stats each have their own respective pros and cons, and so they're all valuable to know as a data scientist. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Shaoli's Twitter profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 581. That's superdatascience.com 581. Finally, if you live in the New York area and would like to experience a Super Data Science episode filmed live, then come to the New York R Conference, which will be held on June 8th through 10th. 
That's the New York R Conference, June 8th through 10th. Huge names in data science will be presenting there, such as Andrew Gelman and Wes McKinney. And to close out the conference on the afternoon of Friday, June 10th, I'll be interviewing Hillary Mason, one of the world's absolute best known data scientists live on stage so you can react and ask her questions in real time. Should be tons of fun and I hope to meet you there or if not at this conference, then somewhere else soon. If you want tickets to the New York R Conference, you can get them 30% off with the code SDS30. That's SDS30. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science podcast for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another extraordinary episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>